Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a bright spring morning here in the capital is Ben Adams. Ben is the founding director of Ben Adams Architects, an architectural practice based in central London. Uh, ben, welcome and thanks ever so much for joining us. Thank you and thank you for inviting me on. It's uh, exciting to be here on a lovely day. It is. It certainly is a lovely day for it. And um, I think, Ben, a good place to start our discussion would be by addressing the elephant in the room here. And that's the fact that although we are slowly moving out of social restrictions, we are somewhat within the grip of the global COVID-19 situation. And we have been now for the best part of the last 14 months. Of course, it's had a tremendous effect on sort of construction and on the architectural industry. But in your case with regards to your practice, to what extent has the last 14 months affected your business? Um, it, it's had a huge impact on on architecture, design and construction, I think like uh, many other industries. Um, I think where we've been fortunate is that um, architectural projects uh, often take a number of years um, from inception uh, to completion. Um, and it means that our, our clients often look into the future um, Three, five, and sometimes ten years ahead, um, with with different scenarios in mind, from from sort of business as usual to uh, big shocks to the system, um, as COVID has been. Uh, so yeah, it's been a, a mixed picture for construction, rather than a sort of seismic change as it may have been in other industries, particularly uh, hospitality and retail. You know, where the shutters came down very quickly. Um, We've had a more a more mixed experience, shall I say. What I'm interested to understand as well is that even though we're now starting to move out of social restrictions and the government is, of course, talking up a great game of construction being a huge part of the Build Back Better agenda, are we seeing certainty for businesses like yours actually coming back or are there still some projects which are still on hold? Maybe there's a little bit of stasis there in the industry and maybe there's still a sense of people just waiting for certain things to become more certain before certain investments are made, et cetera? Yeah, it's an, it's an excellent question. And I think um, confidence and certainty is, is is a real engine for construction um, in the UK and, and elsewhere around the world um, because we have these, these long periods of time for buildings to be conceived and then built. Um, if you lack uh, confidence or there's lots of uncertainty, in, in the wider economy, it, it does make it difficult for our clients to, to make those long-term decisions. Um, but what we are seeing is is a lot of optimism um, in 2021 uh, and a lot of looking forward uh, rather, rather than dealing with the day-to-day. Um, We've we sort of moved beyond that and all our clients are looking, looking ahead uh, rather than looking backwards or, or just worrying about the here and now. Um, and that's, that's really positive. Uh, for what we do as, as designers, because it brings back that sense of, of hope and optimism and, and a certain amount of uh, belief, I think, particularly in our cities. Um, mm. 
what what you and others will have seen is um, headlines, particularly earlier in the in the pandemic, uh, when uh, city centres were were very much closed down. Everyone was at home. Um, there were foxes walking through central London in the middle of the day um, on empty roads um, where I live in in, in Southwark, uh, right by the River Thames. Um, and, and, and all of that has changed. Um, you know, a level of life uh, has returned. Um, we're not back to normal by any means, um, but there is a real kind of change, I think, in a, in a desire to, to get on with life and get on with the things that we do um, as, as designers as well. Um, and it's, it's interesting, I think, to reflect on, on past events a bit like this and all, all the way back to um, the, the Great Plague and the Fire of London and other you know, really serious events that have impacted London um, and other cities. Uh, we generally go through a, a period of massive change mm. and tragedy, of course, um, but, but we learn a lot in those times. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Build Back Better slogan um, is a catchy one, um, but it is, is borne out to an extent by by historic events that we, we do learn from these things and we do build um, different buildings that are better suited to, to what we need um, in the coming years. Um, and perhaps the, the biggest question on everyone's mind until, until quite recently has been, well, what do we need? Um, you know, are, are we going to return to life as we knew it or, or are we going to change the way we work in particular um, forever? Um, and I think the consensus that's emerging is that uh, things will change, but probably not as as much um, as predicted and and largely to the benefit of, of all of us in terms of um, mental health and flexibility and mm. just the ability to work from home, work from the office and, and bring more balance uh, to our working lives. So I, I think that will, that will turn out to be a, a really positive change um, if, if we take a long view uh, of what's happened recently. Mm. And when we talk about that key L word, learning and taking things positive away from the uh, the pandemic and using it to build back better precisely, what are sort of some of the key lessons that you feel that you've perhaps taken away from the last 14 months within your business? Um, it's a great question and it's one we, we had an open forum on recently with, with colleagues from uh, London, New York and Los Angeles um, asking that question of, of their businesses um, around the world. Um, and the, the message was consistent, really, that city centres and density and bringing people together are what make cities um, amazing, uh, and and what what kept people away from our, our city centres and their offices um, and and the shops has been um, fear, real fear of of, of their own health, um, and and the suddenness with which this happened. Um, so I think it, it, it's become something that we, we will learn to live with. Um, I don't think it will go away, uh, COVID. Um, and then how we learn to live with it, it, it is that key lesson, which will be just being more aware of our physical health, washing our hands and doing sensible things that, that we should have been doing anyway. Um, but more significantly, I think that the, the mental health of everyone we interact with and work with and meet socially um, has just moved 
much higher up the agenda. We're, we're all more concerned about each other and and ask more genuinely about uh, how people are and how that they, how they're doing, how they're coping, um, and exchange views on that uh, more freely. And I, I think that's amazing. You know, it's been a long time mm. coming and perhaps taboo for many years, but but now is something that, that that we can all talk about. And so that's been a real uh, noticeable change and a, a positive one, I would say. Um, I think that's very right. Um, I do think that the pandemic certainly has amplified the issue of mental health and well-being, and we are talking about that an awful lot more. We're considering it a lot more within corporate leadership as well. And um, something that we've been talking an awful lot about within the Leaders' Council, actually, of late, is the importance of looking after well-being as a business leader with yourself as well, because I suppose when you are sort of sucked into business survival mode during a crisis like this, it's very easy to sort of be sort of dumbed in that sort of hectic world of running the uh, the business and looking after everybody else that you sort of neglect your own mental well-being. So it is important as well when you're at the top to sort of take a step back and recharge the batteries as and when you need to as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think that's that's absolutely right. And I think it's something that anyone who, who's run a company or, or, or led an organisation um, has felt the strain of um, at times certainly recently, but, but for years, um, you know, there's always been a sort of temptation to try and do more um, and not switch off um, and, and look at your phone at, at times of the day that you shouldn't um, and, and sort of always be working. Um, and I think that there was some machismo uh, attached to that historically that, that thankfully has, has largely gone away. Um, but I think it, it, it's also the case that you do need to provide that leadership. And, and for me, that means um, looking into the future, uh, planning for the worst and, and also planning for the best outcomes that come along and, and being uh, flexible, really, about what may may happen so that you're not just taking one view um, of how things will unfold. Um, you're looking at several versions of that and, and have in your mind a plan for each of them so that you, you don't sort of suffer shocks um, when something changes as, mm. as it inevitably has been um, and that's really helped me at a personal level because it does mean you can then take some time away uh, and take that sort of widescreen view I call it um, where you're looking at, at, the, at the big issues rather than perhaps focusing so hard on the day to day or even panicking about the day-to-day when, when things are changing rapidly. Um, and I think the other thing I've done that has been really positive is, is just ask for help um, from experts that uh, see things differently than I do. Um, so in, in, in the financial world, um, getting good finance direction in place and somebody who is who's just worrying about um, financial issues and, and when it comes to uh, HR and well-being and the care of your staff, uh, making sure you've got somebody in, in that role that is, is just thinking about um, that set of issues and, and genuinely delegating responsibility to those people and, and taking their advice on board and, and letting them um, take action on it as well. And so it's been it's been a positive thing from a leadership point of view. I think as, as many business owners might might. Uh, sort of own up to the, the, the temptation and um, sometimes to try and do and cover and worry about everything but the right thing to do is to spend time on what you excel at uh, uh, and to give, give away 
um, other roles and other responsibilities to people who, who know more about it than you do. Um, but there's been, a, for me, an, an emphasis on, on, on specialization and expertise and, and devolving that out a little bit and allowing other people to, to grow into more, more senior roles um, in, in response to need and, and, and challenge. Um, and, and they've really responded to that. I think people, particularly people working at home, um, you know, they, they do get a little bit tired of, of day-to-day life because mm. it has a certain relentless um, quality at times, you know, staring at the same four walls or, or being limited in what you can do um, beyond work. And and they've all kind of asked for more, actually, um, and said, look, how, how can I get more involved? How can I help? Um, uh, to give an example, I think... Um, Carbon and uh, sustainability, net zero carbon in construction has has become uh, the topic now that all our clients are, are focused on, um, and one that they, they could so easily have ignored um, during uh, COVID and, and lockdown. You know, it could have been seen as a distraction or something for another day, um, but they've all moved it up the agenda and said, "Look, now's the time to um, behave in a more responsible way." when it comes to carbon and think about the climate in our future. And that leads to real opportunities for, for designers and um, people that I work with in my team um, to gain that expertise and, and develop it um, at, at a time when, you know, projects are going on as well. And so, yeah, it's a real positive change. I've been surprised mm. uh, at how, how that's happened. I think there are some incredibly important points that you raise there, certainly with regards to running a business, being able to sort of trust. Trust is something that seriously has been enhanced over the course of the year, the pandemic. And we've seen that through remote working. We've seen leaders delegating, taking steps back and being able to move to more sort of strategic settings, let's say. And also the work-life balance goes in tandem with the the remote working side of things, doesn't it? And how that has an impact on well-being. And I suppose it's an interesting discussion with regards to the architecture industry, isn't it? Because there are benefits to having people being able to work from home and, as we say, have that work-life balance. But as well as that, we do have to consider as well that it's very easy within the architecture industry when you have sort of brains together in one room bouncing off each other. You have ideas being shared in person as well. So um, I suppose there is room for the future of the sector to have a very sort of hybridized working approach, isn't there? Have that time in the office working together and have that time at home as well. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I think um, it's a trend that was emerging long before COVID um, towards uh, more flexible patterns of work. Um, and, and we perhaps see it before other industries because we're designers because we're creative and we give advice to other companies about the spaces they work in and live in, um, we're thinking about the flexibility uh, and those other issues um, before buildings are built uh, to allow it to happen. Um, so that, that balance is, is the one that we have to strike carefully and that there is huge benefit in, in creativity, in, in getting together uh, socially and exchanging ideas and, and just moving at pace um, through a design process by sharing information um, face-to-face. It's an amazing way to communicate when it comes to design, and you will get to hear ideas that, that would be missed um, by Zoom or through a remote connection just because you're in a 
room with somebody. But then there are other parts of, of, of what we do as architects that are well suited um, to being at home. And we, we do a lot of uh, documentation and drawings uh, for construction where you, you need to sort of sit quietly and work through um, a set of information and make sure it's consistent. And that, that really benefits from a, a lack of distraction, actually, and, and a certain amount of quietness and comfort and ability to think clearly. And um, so that hybrid model um, really suits our industry um, and all creative industries, I, I would say. Um, but I think that the key to making a, a successful uh, change is is being flexible both ways. Um, I think we've seen a lot of advocates of flexibility that are very inflexible. I, you will come in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You will work from home Thursday and Friday. Um, and that's not really flexible at all. It's just a different kind of inflexible working. Um, and we're looking at it quite differently and thinking about the working day, people who like to start earlier and finish earlier, start later, finish later, and also the needs of our projects and their teams. Um, you know, They tend to need to get together on a Tuesday, say, so everybody needs to be here on a Tuesday, um, but there are other parts of the week when it's beneficial to be at home. Uh, so I think changing that that mindset at a, at a CEO level uh, towards working from home to start with has already happened, but then thinking about flexibility and what it means and allowing give and take on both sides that, you know, employees want flexibility and need and benefit from it. But so do employers. Um, you know, we can't just give everybody what they want. Um, there's a potential for no work to get done. Um, and that, that, that's something we're sort of exploring ourselves, but also for our clients. It's, you know, how, how do you get that flexibility baked in, um, but in a way that actually benefits everyone? You know, it's, it's not just in one direction or another. Exactly right. And a lot plenty for leaders to consider. And it is certainly an interesting time ahead for the industry as it will have a key role to play in the economic recovery uh, to come after COVID. And thinking about that in just a little bit more detail, just before we do wrap things up, Ben, because I'm conscious that we are starting to run short of time. Um, what do you sort of expect in terms of the direction the industry is going to go in in the next few months as we move out of social restrictions? And indeed, for your own practice, where do you see yourselves this time in 2022? So I, I think city centres will, will always thrive. Uh, you know, our big cities have always grown, uh, generally got better and been through periods of change. And there's absolutely no doubt that a city like London will continue to spring back to life and thrive, but will also change. And for us, change is opportunity. It means design needs to be done and we need to think hard about questions that we haven't been asked before. Um, so in terms of the next 12 months, I think the rest of 2021 um, will be good, actually. It'll be steady. Um, I don't think it, it, there'll be a sudden explosion of the uh, of work in the creative sector, but there will be a steady sort of increase in the amount that we're doing. Um, and the next year, I think, will be a much, much more positive story um, as as COVID recedes or becomes just part of life um, in a way that it, that it still isn't yet. Um, and we do learn to live with it in the way that we live with, with flu and other 
sort of endemic diseases. Um, I think our sector will, will come back to life um, more strongly because because of that confidence that I spoke of and that certainty amongst clients and people that commission buildings and that ability of all of them and us to start to look into the future 12, 24, 36 months ahead um, with greater clarity. Um, and that's, all, that's always when times improve for us, when, when people can sort of look into the future and, and, and believe what they see. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic this year um, and, then, and, and then very hopeful about next year. I think we'll see a real change in 2022. Yeah, certainly interesting times ahead, Ben. And um, I think as we start to get a clearer picture as to what sort of direction the industry is going in and exactly what is going to be happening with this economic recovery, it would be great to actually welcome you back onto the programme and to see what is going on. Because um, I've got to say, I found it a real eye-opening experience welcoming you onto the show today. And I'm sure the listeners also share that sentiment. Uh, Thank you. That's very kind. And uh, yes, I'd be delighted to, uh, to come back and see how things are going. Um, as time goes by. Yes, absolutely. Um, thanks again, Ben, for taking the time to join us. And since we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, but we are getting closer, uh, do continue also to take care and stay safe with all still going on. You too. And thank you. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Ben Adams, founding director of Ben Adams Architects, onto the programme today. And coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by former England cricket skipper Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his playing days, Sir Andrew actually joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Um, He also, following his retirement, spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and I do hope that you all enjoy listening to the interview that is coming up next. Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here thank you. The pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career as I said both on and off the pitch in English cricket recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, 
see your name being put up on the Lord's honour board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club Quite. you know and i think we'd all been sort of 
living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after. You know that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, privilege I'm sure no doubt to serve as captain and whether you like it or not you become the focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain and what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm -hmm. you know you're absolutely right you, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying: okay, if I'm going to do this job. What is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and 
the job of the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game and understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move. With, in fact, we didn't have to move at the times. We need to get ahead of the times. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky 
uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families 
prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events there, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up again year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that 
and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.